Our scripture reading this morning is the account, the gospel account in Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 40. I ask you to follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible of your own, our ushers stand ready with Bibles in hand. And if you would just raise your hand, they'll bring one right to you that you can use throughout our service this morning. We do read from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and so our Bibles would reflect that. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 40. Let's all stand then in respect to the reading of God's holy word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of, he of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother Mary, excuse me, and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The truth, the gospel, is better than any made-up story. And we're here to hear, to appreciate, and to be faithful in our own lives to that gospel. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? We thank you, Father, for allowing us to come and to worship together this day, for this place of gathering that you've allowed us to have for this group of people that come regularly to worship and to fellowship together. We pray, Lord, that you would use this service to bless our hearts, to encourage our hearts, to challenge, to inform, to instruct, to lead, and to guide us in your truth as we serve together. We're thankful for this time of year, for what it represents even though most people don't recognize the truth and the reality of Christ and his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven and is seating right now, sitting right now at your right hand for you to release him to come back to this earth to begin your kingdom with your people. John the Baptist said, 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message is still strong today that we, men and women, boys and girls, need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see so much nonsense, injustice, disgrace, foolishness, sin, violence, all types of things in the kingdoms of this world. And so some have been disheartened to think that your kingdom will not come. But you brought your son into the world to bring about your kingdom and you did it so that we could be prepared for that kingdom by having our sins forgiven. No one enters your kingdom apart from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his death, his burial, his resurrection as the only preparation that can bring us before you in your presence. So we thank you for what you've done in Jesus. Now we pray, Lord, that as Brian preaches today, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to use him, his life, his words, his message today to guide our hearts, to challenge us, to instruct us in your truth, that we would be willing to commit our lives for this gospel, for this Savior who has given his life for us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Our choir comes now for selection, the final selection before the preaching of God's word today. Our messenger, the deliverer of God's word today is Brian Christopher Kenner. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who is born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Lo, we have traveled far. Torn and weary, guided by a star. But before us, the living King, hallelujah, his praises sing. Hear us. With an evil plan, kill the baby. Came his bold command. He tried to alter God's holy plan. God has saved him, the son of man.
Three kings from a distance came, bearing gifts for the Holy One. Shout to heaven, sound a drum, tell the nations the Lord has come. Especially on a day like this, where we celebrate Christmas as a church. In our children's program, I was talking to Lawrence about it. He told me, he said, it's a shame. It's a shame. It went so good. <laughs> and 
I was I was agreeing with him. It went real good. So praise God for that. Praise God for all you guys' efforts. But God put a word on my heart, and so I want to bring that to you. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word being true, Lord. We thank you for your spirit who interprets your word for us and helps us to understand and it helps us to speak it. And I pray that you bless us. Lord, help me to be like an oracle of you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 2. When you look at the scriptures, one of the things you want to do is you want to look at the purpose for why it was written. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, what you see is how the prophetic word of God is fulfilled. How it seems like Jesus is marching along, fulfilling every book of the prophets. It seems like he knows Isaiah 9, 6 is coming, so he's going to do that verse. He's going to do this verse. He's going to do that verse. It's like he's guided by these scriptures that have already been written. What you get from Matthew is that the plan of God is going forth, and there's not, no deviation. There's no plan B. Mark is a little bit different because Mark just gets you straight into the ministry of Christ. It does not have the Christmas story. But when Jesus begins, he simply appears, just like John appears. There's no introduction. There's no prelude, it's just, and John appeared, and Jesus appeared, and they just start doing things. And the whole point of Mark is to show us the ministry of Christ, the actions of Christ, and how that is empowered by God. When you look at the Gospel of John, what you see in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The way he opens up is a cosmic aspect of Jesus Christ that goes way beyond the Christmas story to the creation of the world, even before the creation of the world, when God was the only one that was. When it was just God the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Son and Father and Spirit had made a plan from the beginning of creation that the Son would come down and that he would have flesh and dwell among us, and that we would see his glory. The glory as the only begotten Son of God. That his light will shine forth and it will be unmistakable to those who have seen that light. It will be something that nobody else can imitate. Many people try to imitate it, but they can never duplicate the glory of Jesus Christ. But Luke was written that we would not just believe, but that we would have certainty. That we will be confident believers, that we would know the facts that we will know the whys, and that we will be able to piece together a way of putting the facts and the logic together so that when somebody else challenges us, we can say, this is what happened. Because Luke is a doctor. Luke is making a case. So when you look at the book of Luke, it's not good to just look at it one verse at a time. You have to kind of look at it with how is he organizing things. One thing to think about is this. If you wrote Jesus' story day by day, there's lots of things that are not included in Luke and lots of things that are. Therefore, what he includes and what he doesn't include tells you something. 
He is giving us a point. The scripture is giving us a point. When you think to yourself, why did it include this part in the book of Numbers? It's not by accident that God included that. It's a reason. He didn't include other parts for a reason. Just like last week, Dad talked about we don't know the exact birth of Christ. The day. We don't know. There's a reason he didn't include that. We do know the day of his death. We know that it has to coincide with the Passover. We know that. We know it happened on a Sunday. That's why we worship on Sundays. What we know and what we don't know, what God shows us and what God doesn't show us, are just as important. So when you get into the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, Nothing that is mentioned is mentioned by accident. And it paints a picture of gloominess. I think sometimes we read these scriptures so many times that we lose connection to the reality that they really reflect. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That's not normal. Everybody got to go to their hometown. Who does something like that? A dictator does something like that. That is not something that a kind and loving ruler does. To force people, regardless of how pregnant they may be, to move across the country. They don't have cars and things like that in those days. They got to put up somebody on a horse or a donkey and walk sometimes across the country, across hills, across mountains to get to the town that they're registered at. Is that somebody who's a loving king who does that? No. That is a person who doesn't care. He wants what he wants. Not only this, when you say the name Caesar Augustus, what you start to realize is that this is a Roman emperor, the greatest Roman emperor, a ruthless man. The Romans were known to be ruthless and efficient. The Romans are known for making those cold, logical decisions. And what they wanted to do was they knew that the Jews were known to be a rebellious people, and they were going to force them to do something that was painful. And they were hoping that somebody would step out of line, because if they did, they were just going to kill anybody who did. If you look further in this verse, these verses you see that Joseph is of the house of David. And you might say, oh, that's good. But no, it's not. Because the fact that David's house still exists and is known in those days is probably not a good thing. Imagine that you're the king and that there are other people who used to be kings in your land. Are you going to treat them nicely or are you going to treat them harshly? Well, you can tell by how poor Joseph is, how poor Mary is, that the house of David is not quite the house of David that we see in the book of 2 Samuel. They're not doing too well. The fact that they are of the house of David probably makes them think, man, what happened to us? Do we think of the swaddling in the manger? Do we think of a cute scene? And in reality, what you have is a baby that's put in rags and put into the dish that the animals eat out of. 
That's what a manger is. What you have is a people who had no choice but to go to Bethlehem. What you have is a people that probably prayed super hard that they would have some place to sleep and that there was no room anywhere. What you have is a people who probably said, God, can you please give us somewhere? And it's the only thing that somebody would do is open up a barn. What you have are people who probably wondering, are we really doing what God wants us to do? And this is the way that the Savior was chosen to come into the world. And all of these things seem to be done by the will of man. But is that the case? Turn with me to Micah chapter 5 verse 2. We've been going through some of these minor prophets. I hope you can remember where some of these are. But there's Jonah, then there's Micah, then there's Nahum. And it says in Micah 5, 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Was it an accident that they ended up in Bethlehem? Was it an accident that he ended up in a manger? In swaddling clothes. These things were all the plan of God that he made known to his prophet Micah way hundreds of years before. So we have to ask ourselves this, why did God on purpose make Jesus so poor? Why did God on purpose put Jesus through hardship from the day of his birth? And the only answer that we could come with is this, that God made Jesus poor for us. The other scripture says this, God blesses the humble, but he hates the proud. God chooses the lowly. I can guarantee that this is not how the Antichrist will be born. Satan does not choose the lowly. Satan chooses the loud, the attention-getting, the beautiful, the elite. If you want to see where Satan is going to work, find the places with the most money, find the places with the most power, find the places with the most beautiful people, and there you will find Satan at work. But if you want to find the places where God works, Jesus says this, I am meek and lowly of heart. Put your burden upon me. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. He's not talking to somebody who can say, yeah, I got a heavy burden. Servant, take that. He's talking to people who are used to being oppressed. He's talking to people who are used to being poor. Maybe that's why he opened the Beatitudes with that. Blessed be the poor. Blessed be the meek. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are the peacemakers. We don't see, blessed are the warmongers. Blessed are the guys who got five women. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the proud. We don't see that. But another reason that when we look in Luke chapter 2, what we see is 
We see the facts. And verse 1 through 7 tell us the facts so that when somebody questions how Christ was born, they're running against the truth. I see all kind of people get on the news and they say stuff that doesn't make any sense. And you ought to question where they're even coming with some of the stuff that they come with. I don't care if they got a doctor degree. I don't care if they're master's degrees. I don't care if they study theology. If they don't know that it happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus, if they don't know that Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem, if they don't know that Jesus was born in a manger, that he was really born, that he was born of a virgin, they don't know anything. These facts are important because they relate to the central thing of the doctrine of Christ. That we understand that he was born with purity that none of us can attain to from birth. But even though he was born in purity, even though he was born holy, even though he was born with all this power, he chose to take the appearance of a lowly person. And so that kind of humility is something that we as Christians, we can't ignore. So therefore, it has to be a mark of those of us who call ourselves the followers of Christ. But then you look at verses 8 through 20. And I like to call this section the witness of heaven and earth. Because what we get from this section and from this story and this beautiful story of these shepherds who are keeping watch over their sheep. And the angels appear. And we have lots of songs on this, don't we? And the reason that we have lots of songs on this is because it's dramatic. You got these angels appearing, this angel telling us this great news, and all of a sudden a choir of angels just joins them. How many sections of Scripture do you see where there's more than one angel? I mean, take out the book of Revelation, which takes place in heaven. And I'm telling you, you're not going to see a lot of places in the Bible where there's more than one angel in one place. But here you got a multitude of angels appearing on earth. I would challenge and say that maybe not since Jacob saw the ladders going into heaven do we see more than one angel moving at once. And as we look back all the way till then, what you see is that God's plan is working. The angels come and they say, fear not. Because I bring you tidings of great joy. And the thing that we should think about from that is that a lot of people, they would like to say that what we're doing is, well, you know, let's get past that, let's get to the presence, let's get to this. What we're giving is the real reason to have joy. You know, there are a lot of times people who say this, and I'm torn about what I believe about this, but there are stats that show that there's more suicides during the holiday season. And there's other stats that say there's more suicides right after the holiday season. And I can understand them both. Because there's lots of people who think that they should have family or think they should have kids or think they should have this or that. They don't have it. And the holiday season kind of shows that they don't have somebody that they want to have. So... They hate themselves, and they don't look towards their hope in God. They look towards their hope in man, and they don't see it. 
And sad to say, man will always let you down. So if your hope is in man, you're going to be in a pitiful shape. Then other people build up the holidays to this point that it's going to be such a great thing. And it kind of reminds me of when I was a little kid and I thought of my birthday and I thought I was going to get 20 different things. And my birthday was good, but because I had built up this expectation that was so high, I was disappointed. There was no way I could ever be satisfied because my expectation was so unrealistic that even good was bad. And I think that's what a lot of people do to the holidays. They go up and they build these expectations. The family is going to be so happy. Nobody's going to be fighting. The food is going to be so good. Every present is going to be perfect. Everybody's going to be smiling. And then it doesn't happen. And one thing goes wrong. And they're sitting there doing all these things, getting so busy. And by the time it's done, they just wish it was over. Or they stressed out or they tired. They want to take vacations from a vacation day. And the reason that happens is because they're not focused on the real reason for joy. The angel says this. For unto you and is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born this day a Savior. That's where our real hope lies in. See, when you hope in men, let me tell you, even if a man is a man of good word, he can't guarantee he can ever do anything. I will be there tomorrow. Dude, I the point when I will be where I'm going to be. Can I truly determine that? But when you talk to God, he has already fixed what he will do tomorrow. If he tells you, I'm going to do this for you tomorrow, he's already done. Because he's the one that established what will happen tomorrow. When we put our hope in God's words, we will not be disappointed. He says this further, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God, right? Worshiping God, man, God is good. And as a result of that, there is peace among men. Now, what kind of peace are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about peace with God, right? Peace with God. We know that our sin sets us apart from God. But when we understand that Jesus Christ is our Savior, there's now peace with God. But peace with God also means peace with our fellow man. Jesus Christ has put love in our hearts so that we as brothers and sisters, now we can have peace with our fellow man. And then even for those of us who have to interact with people who are not believers, which is all of us, right? We have peace in our hearts, so even when they act a fool, we still have wisdom. In many times, in many situations, I've been able to have a peaceful outcome because I have wisdom when somebody else doesn't. We have more access to more peace because we have the spirit of peace in us. Now, after the shepherds hear this great news, I want you to look at verse 15, what it says. 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I love their response because their response is what everybody should do to a good sermon. The first thing they do is they talk to each other and encourage themselves to obey what God taught them to do. Amen. Let's go obey. It's too often that we just want to be quiet and just assume everybody is going to do what's right. And reality is, from this Christmas story, what we learn is even when we hear a word from angels, hey man, let's go. Somebody's got to be the one to say that. Let it be you. And if you hear somebody else say it, don't be, oh, I was going anyway. That's a lot of people's response. No, go ahead. Yeah, man, I'm going too. You know, people, <laughs> it's funny. When people be in church and they get encouraged to do something, they get bad attitudes quick, don't they? Hey, man, let's all go into service. Why well, I'm already going. <laughs> but in the world, they be like, hey, man, let's go to the bar. Don't nobody say, I'm already going. Like, yeah, man, we getting wasted. Yeah. They be encouraging. But you say, let's go to the church. I'm already going. Now that you said that, I ain't going. That's Satan that's encouraging you to be nasty like that. Don't be like that. Be one of those who goes along with what God is saying. So they have mutual encouragement. Another thing that maybe we can quickly miss is, why were they outside in the first place? They're watching their sheep. There's no way they're watching the sheep when they go to see Jesus. They leave those sheep. But that's okay, because we leave everything behind when we hear what God has told us to do. Leave everything behind. A lot of times when people get saved, they want to hold on to their old friends. They want to hold on to their old ways and want to drag that into the new one. Jesus said this, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And what he was describing was a physical process that would happen when, when you put new wine in old wineskins, the wineskin would burst. It would explode. You'd waste the wine and the wineskin. And the whole point is this. You can't put your new life in your old life's clothes. You got to let it go. You have to let it go. I've seen many people get saved and their common story is always this. All my friends didn't like me anymore. Who's had that experience when they got saved? Raise your hand. Who's had that experience? If you've been saved, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to let them go. You need to let them go. You're trying to force them to come with you and they don't want to. Let them go. They leave those sheep behind. And they go to confirm what the angels told them. And when they see it, they immediately share the word. It says there, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And what we see here is how revelation works in general, how God will bring the word to man and man brings the word to men. And these men, we don't count on them to believe the word because of our status or our personal story. They're going to believe because they're convinced by the Spirit of God. We simply have to tell the truth. Don't worry about how it's going to work. Just simply do it. And it's God who will do the work of the convicting. We as a church, we got to get better at spreading the word. 
We assume people know. They don't know. We assume people will come. They will not come until you ask them. They will not keep coming until you push them. They will not increase faithfulness until you say, I expect you to be here on Sunday night. Yeah, I'm coming on Wednesday, and I expect you to be here too. You got kids? I expect you to be here on Sunday school. Until they get that personal message from you. Hey, brother, I didn't see you here on Wednesday. Where were you? Until we get to that point where we are speaking directly into our lives, we're not going to see that increase in faithfulness. Because faithfulness doesn't come by accident. A lot of times when we encourage each other towards faithfulness, it's at the time when the faithful are the only ones that are there anyway. We come to Sunday school and we tell everybody, we need to be more faithful. Guess who there? The people that come to Sunday school. Wednesday nights we pray for faithfulness. And guess what? The people that need to hear it is not there. A lot of times people ask me, I didn't know such and such went on. Bro, we was talking about that on Sunday night. I didn't even know so-and-so was sick. Were you there on Wednesday? Been praying about it the last six Wednesdays. So-and-so has cancer. Really? Yes. Yeah, we've been talking about it every service. Where have you been? There needs to be a challenge of faithfulness, of speaking. And when you do it, you'll be like the shepherds. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. The witness of heaven and earth. The angels said what God had did, and the shepherds confirmed what God had did, and they both spread the word. But the next section, we see the witness of the Holy Spirit. The first person that we see is a man of God named Simeon. A man who is said was led by the Holy Spirit. He's a prophet. He has a special promise that you rarely see anywhere else in Scripture. He's been told when he will die. And he was told you will not die until you see the Messiah himself. And when he saw the baby, you have to understand this. Nobody is going to let you take a newborn baby unless they give their approval, right? You ain't going to go up to John and take his son. You ain't going to do that. Unless John give you the approval to do that. They didn't just, he didn't just go up and just snatch the baby Jesus. They had to have recognized something about him that was different than just some normal stranger. And they recognized that the Holy Spirit was with him, that they were speaking with a prophet. And when the prophet came and he spoke, he says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He gives a blessing according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They're like, whoa, this dude is saying something. He gives a blessing, but quickly he gives a warning. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. And a sword will pierce your, through your soul, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What is he speaking to? He's speaking to this that Jesus is not going to be universally received. 
he's speaking to this, that many people will hate Jesus, just as they hate him to this day. That's why some people won't even say Merry Christmas. They can't even stand us saying Christ before must. Some people even go as far as to put an X before. And I know some people do it as shorthand, but I believe that the origination of that is to try to cross out Jesus. There are many people who want to act like you can just have a holiday tree. But they don't say there's a holiday menorah. They don't say somebody who's fasting during Ramadan is doing a holiday fast. But they want to take away our holidays quick. And the reason they do that is because they hate Jesus. And don't, don't shorthand it. Oh, no, they just don't understand. No, they hate Jesus. Because if they didn't hate Jesus, they wouldn't be saying that. And you may say, well, you know, they just don't understand us. No, they don't understand Islam either, but they don't do that to their holidays. They don't do that to Buddhist holidays. They even got respect for Kwanzaa, and I don't know nobody in the world who celebrates Kwanzaa. <laughs> Somebody at work, they asked me, and I knew they asked me because I was black, and they asked me what, what they celebrate for Kwanzaa, and I said, oh, how do I know? I don't know nobody who celebrates no Kwanzaa. That's the most messed up holiday in the whole country. Kwanzaa. I remember somebody asked me how you celebrate Kwanzaa, and they said, you know, it's seven, and they said, I said, yeah, you got to do seven things. And then they said, oh, really? I, I heard it was 11 things you had to do. I said, well, you know, it's 7 and 11. And what we do is we like to go to the nearest 7 Eleven. <laughs> they was believing me. Because guess what? There was nobody there to contradict me because nobody celebrates it. <laughs> but. People got all this respect for all these other people's days, but they don't have respect for Christmas. And the reason is because Jesus Christ reveals where people really stand. Now, don't get me wrong. If you talk about a watered-down Jesus Christ, it doesn't reveal anything. Joel Osteen is not revealing anything. Sorry, I exposed him too much. But if you speak about the fact that you are born a sinner and that God holds all men accountable and that one day we will have to face an angry God who will not allow us to make excuses for our evil. If we speak to the fact that thus says the Lord, that he does not compromise on his word, that his word is perfect, that it should be believed every single word, you will quickly see people's faces will either change to one of praise of God or rejection of God. Sometimes even in our own church when I preach the word, I see people, you know, I see them getting tight down there. And I have to say, oh man, you know, Christ is revealing something there. And what that means is when you feel yourself getting all tight and holding on like that, that's sin. That's the old man. I hope this is the old man. Unless it's the present man holding on to what you don't want God to expose his light to. We become like those who've been in the dark so long that when you see the light, it hurts. And that's what Jesus is. He's a big, bright light. Now, if you want to be helped, you want that light. But if you're doing something dirty, 
You don't want that light on you. Get that out of here! Is what you'll hear. The second witness of the Holy Spirit is a woman by the name of Anna. Anna's a holy woman. She was holy, and we know she was holy because she lived a pure life until she was married. I know a lot of people don't like to speak to that, but that's important. We need to raise our kids to be pure until they get married. I was pure until I was married, and I'm proud of that fact. We need to start raising our kids to be pure until they get married, not just so that they wear protection when they do sin. Raise them so that they may be pure, so that they will stand on the truth. They not be ashamed. And they may get, when they get older, somebody going to make fun of them and say, oh, yeah, you ain't done this yet. What? Guess what? I also don't have three kids I have to pay child assistance for either. So I'll be making fun of you when you see your paycheck. <laughs> Give them a comeback. This is a woman who was pure. She had one husband. She was a good woman. Her husband died, though. But after her husband died, she didn't stop serving the Lord. It says that for 84 years, and I think that the way it's translated, it could be one of two things. Either she was 84 years old when this text was written, or more likely she served the Lord for 84 years after she was married, which means that she was probably over 100, if that's the case. She was still serving the Lord. She was known to be old. She was known to be serving God. She was known to be a prophetess. And what had happened? She came at that very hour, it says. You think that's an accident? She came at that very hour. And it says this. She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, one thing about the people of God is they recognize <laughs> that other people need to be redeemed. Don't you recognize that sometimes? You're like, man, they need to be redeemed, boy. This city of Milwaukee needs to be redeemed. Every time I see somebody run a red light, which is more and more frequently, I think, man, that driving needs to be redeemed. Every time I go and I see somebody just throw trash right on the grass, man, that litter needs to be redeemed. Sometimes I go home and I see my kid hit another kid, and I say, that kid needs to be redeemed. We see a lot of need for redemption. But she was sharing about Christ to a small but faithful group. Not everybody in Jerusalem was looking forward to Jesus' coming, but she was. But there's something that is more interesting than I found if you look at this, and that is this. Everybody who's mentioned so far in the book of Luke is old. Zechariah is old. Elizabeth is old. Simeon is old. Anna is old. The only people that are young are the two babies, John the Baptist and Jesus, and Mary and Joseph. And the whole point of the old and the young is to say this, that the old represent the Old Testament saints, the best of the Old Testament. And they represent a time period that is coming to an end. Uh, aged before Jesus, that is dying, aged but not jealous of the new age, but is looking forward to the new age. They represent the true 
Jewish religion. Not like the Pharisees. They represent the real religion of the Old Testament that God wanted his servants to follow. If you notice, all four of them are said to have the Holy Spirit in them. All four of them are old, but all four of them look forward to Jesus' coming with joy. And so should we. I believe that our age is starting to come towards an end. Where we will look forward to Jesus' coming. We shouldn't look to it with fear, but with joy. The third witness of the Holy Spirit in this section is the Word of God. It says this in verse 22. And when the time came near for their purification, according to the law of Moses, what's that? The Word of God. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. They observe the law of the Lord. And go down to verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The law of the Lord is now the third witness of the Holy Spirit. Christ fulfills a law. Now, what were these laws made for? They were made for sinners. There was a law that said that when you were born, you were unclean. And what it symbolizes is this. We're all born into sin. But if anybody didn't have to follow that law, it was Jesus. Because he was not born into sin. So therefore, why did he obey the laws of purification? It was so that he would stand in our place and say, I'm taking on an appearance of sinfulness for you. I am not sinful, but I take on the appearance of sin for you. I will fulfill all the law for you. Yeah, I could go past it. Jesus said this later on. He says, who do you think the law was written for? For God or for man? He said this later, the Sabbath, God is still working. And I'm also working. Later on, he said this. Who do you think that the kings of this world tax? Their sons or others? And Peter said, others. He said, well, then I'm exempt. But in order to not offend, go ahead and pay my tax. He's observing the law, so he would do it for our sake, not for his. The fourth witness of the Holy Spirit is the name. Verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. What was his name? Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. Just like my dad spoke to last week, Jehovah saves is also the name Joshua. And when you think about Jesus, you can't help but think about somebody who is strong and commanding, just like Joshua was. Joshua, who was strong and courageous, who obeyed the word of God, who believed the word of God, and thus led the people of Israel. Now, I bring this whole passage to you to say this. When you look at these verses, I want you to have certainty in the truth of Christ. 
Well, we see our three human witnesses so that we would even be able to say in the court of law that Jesus was born as the scripture says he was. The shepherds, Simeon and Anna. We see the poverty of Christ pointed out repeatedly for a reason. The poverty of Christ you see in verse 7 where it talks about the swaddling clothes in a manger. Again, the angel says you're going to find him in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And even if you look at verse 24 when it says, and they offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, if you actually look in the law, that's actually an exception. What the law says is offer a lamb, but if you're too poor, you can offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. They were so poor that they couldn't offer a lamb. They couldn't afford that. The poverty of Christ is mentioned because God is wanting to tell us through this account of Luke that he chooses the lowly, not the proud. The passage points out the humanity and the deity of Christ. The humanity of Christ is seen in the fact that he's poor, that he had to be born, that in verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. We might say to ourselves, how can he grow and how can he be filled with wisdom when he's God? But that's his human part, right? His brain still has to develop. He still had to learn how to walk, and he probably stumbled and failed sometimes, right? He still had to learn how to talk. He still had to learn his language. All these things happened because he was human, but he could be told that he was the savior of all the world because he's God. But he couldn't be the savior of all the world if he was not born as a man. The importance of Jesus' deity and his humanity cannot be overstressed. But the main thing that I want to look at this passage is God's word. Look at verse 15. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Jerusalem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it has been told them. Verse 21. The name he was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 23 as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And you see the Holy Spirit moving again in verse 25. Now the man living in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon, this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 27, he came in the spirit of the temple. The Lord said, the spirit is moving, and Jesus has come. What you see is all three aspects of the Trinity at work. You see God the Father. You can't help but see God the Son. He's a little baby, right? And you see the spirit. But what you see is God is in control. God's word should be true in our hearts. God's word is something that we must believe. I'm going to say this and give a warning that we must believe all of God's word. And I believe this very strongly 
that if you don't believe all of God's word, I don't think you can say that you are saved. Now, somebody might say, well, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross of my sin, but I don't necessarily believe in the book of Genesis. That you don't believe God's word. I'm going to give you one final story. Our good friend, Michael Dick, before he was saved, he was not living a righteous life. And me and my brother began to talk about spiritual gifts. And he heard us talking about spiritual gifts, not about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for his sins. Not about the cross. We were speaking about spiritual gifts. And Michael was curious about what we were speaking And he believed what we said about spiritual gifts. It struck his mind that God gave special powers to his people. And he wanted access to those powers. But he knew that he needed to believe God's words. He believed God's word on spiritual gifts. That night, he stopped sleeping with his girlfriend. That next day, he told his girlfriend he couldn't do that no more. That week, he stopped cussing. He stopped drinking. It took him a while, but he trained himself to stop cussing. It's hard to stop cussing when you've been doing it every other word. But he trained himself. He would slip up and be like, oh, man, I can't believe it. We're like, Michael, man, you're making progress, dude. It's all right, man. Be patient with yourself. God is working. You guys don't know how he was before he was saved. It was night and day. But what did he believe? He simply believed God's word. I believe if you turn somebody to a passage of Deuteronomy and they believe it, and they further say, I will believe all of God's word, they will be saved. Therefore, we must stress God's word. There's not a verse that should not be believed. There's not a verse that's not worthy to be preached. Even the verses that may seem unpopular these days. It's okay. If we believe him, we will be saved. The scripture says this, wait on the Lord and you will not be put to shame. And what it means is believe in all of God's word and he will make it so that you will see that your word will stand firm. It said in another passage that they knew that Samuel had been chosen to be a prophet because none of his words fell to the ground. None of God's words fall to the ground. Therefore, they all must be believed. No doctrine is so minor that we shouldn't observe it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your story, Lord, that we learned of in Luke 2. We want to believe it, Lord. We want to observe your word. We don't want to take your word for granted, Lord. We want to do your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to be those who teach your word, who push your word, who talk about your word casually, who will challenge people who try to challenge your word, who will not let a challenge to your word go unanswered. Because we believe all of your word. And all of your word saves. Even parts that may seem unrelated to your son. If a person says they're going to believe all of God's word, they can't help but believe that your son died on the cross for their sins. And if a person does not want to believe in your word, it's impossible for them to then say that they believe that your son has died for them because that's in your word. 
So pray, I pray, Lord, that you will build in us a faith, that we would trust in your word and believe it. In your name we pray. Amen.